Heaven cannot be a place where all our endings resolve themselves and we sit back and breathe a sigh of relief that it's all over. Surely, every ending is merely a new beginning. And dying? Yeah, that's not the end either. It's just one more portal on a journey that never ends. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of your guns and pumps and explode into space. I like smoking lightning. Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition, where I've been reading from my novel Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. David has been humbled and tested and burned in the crucible of his own fallible humanity. Now, finally, he gets to go home. This is Chapter 6, Part 3. It was the sounds that David noticed first, squeaking souls on waxed floors, voices echoing down bare corridors, the hum of electric lights. He sensed a presence. Am I dead? He asked into the void. The sounds stopped. A voice above him said, No, 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 you're not dead. Just a minute. I've got to wait just a minute. And again, he heard the squeaking of shoes running off down a hallway. He drifted off again. The thing he noticed the next time he awoke was a pain in his chest, a barbed hook that caught him every time he inhaled. He took another breath just to be sure. The pain stabbed him again just above his sternum. He held his breath and slowly let it out. At least he could breathe. This was a good sign. He hurt and he could breathe. These were both good signs. He drifted away again. Voices floated above him now, unlikely voices, familiar voices, but strange. Was this another dream? He had only to open his eyes to find out, but he was reluctant, suspended for the moment between awake and asleep. There would be no turning back once he opened his eyes. He would be making a choice, a choice he was not yet ready to make. Yet he heard, quite clearly now, the voice of Cecil, his neighbor, and another, younger voice, but deeper than he remembered. He opened his eyes and sat bolt upright. Paul, he tried to say, but a seal of phlegm broke in his throat, and the word became a guttural cough. David leaned forward and erupted into a coughing spasm, the pain in his chest catching him with each convulsion. 
A nurse rushed in and, stepping up to the bed, placed her hand on his back, helping him bend forward. Finally, gasping, he caught his breath and fell back into the pillows, spent. He was certainly awake now. The nurse reached for his wrist. Are you all right? she asked. David nodded. Your body's had a bit of a shock, she said, holding his wrist. We almost lost you, several times, in fact, so you just need to take it easy. You have some resting up to do. Paul's face came into view. Paul, David called out weakly, Paul. The nurse looked down at her watch and released David's hand, placing it beside him on the bed, giving it a pat. You're doing just fine, she said, smiling. What happened? He tried to mouth the words. There'll be time for that later, she said. You had a fall. You've broken your leg, and you suffered serious hypothermia. They airlifted you in. You're a lucky man, Reverend Corcoran. She patted his hand again, smiled, and turned to leave. Not too long, gentlemen, she called over her shoulder as she left the room. David felt his right leg now. At least he felt the dead weight of it, wrapped from thigh to toe in a thick plaster cast and suspended above the bed by some sort of line and pulley system. Paul moved in closer and looked down at his dad. Hi, Dad, he said. Oh, Paul, David said, his eyes filling with tears. He lifted his hand off the bed. Paul took it into his own. David smiled up at him, so big, so grown up now. There was someone else here. Cecil sat slumped in an armchair in the far corner of the room like a child, his cap folded in his hands, his small dark eyes surveying the father and son reunion. David smiled and nodded in his direction. Cecil lifted his cap in greeting. David lay back and closed his eyes. When he woke again, he learned it was Wednesday. Three days lay behind him, unaccounted for. Paul and Cecil were gone. A nurse entered the room. He recognized her instantly. It was Ruth, who he used to visit with at the nurse's station. She sat him up, puffing the pillows and propping them behind his back. He was filled with questions. He was in the Tofino Hospital. He knew that. Now he learned that he had been rescued from the headland by a team of volunteer firefighters, along with some risky maneuvering by the search-and-rescue helicopter. They feared that his heart had stopped. They couldn't get a pulse. So they administered CPR all the way back. This accounted for the pain in his chest. At the hospital, they had warmed his blood intravenously and kept him breathing with a handheld respirator. That had been her job, Ruth said. He smiled up at her. Thank you. But how had they known? She shrugged, shaking her head. She said he should rest now. And she left the room. How had they found him? How did they know he was there? His heart stopped? He had been brought back from the brink of death? Amazing. A beguiling mystery filled with so many unanswered questions. Released now from slumber, David's mind was a video of floating images. The faces of Beverly and his children as they appeared to him in the dark. The curious man in the red life jacket his father standing before him, tall and stoical. A black bear? <laughs> Preposterous, and yet, why could he smell so vividly the smell of its breath? The human figures, some real, some imagined. It was all a great mystery, but a miraculous mystery, for here he was, alive. Thank you, Lord, he whispered. 
but it sounded so thin, so inadequate, the words little more than a formality. He tried them again. Lord, I just want to thank you. No, it wasn't working. It wasn't going to be enough. He had no doubt now that God was listening to him, perhaps even smiling down on him. It felt good to be able to pray again. But his real thanks, he suspected, would have to find some other way out than words. The faint glow of a new understanding flickered across his mind. Why else would he have been spared? The next time Paul and Cecil came in, David was sitting up. He pumped them with questions. Paul had arrived on Monday as planned, but there had been no one to meet him at the airport in Nanaimo. He had to get a bus, three buses actually, and was lucky to arrive in Euclid before midnight. He had found the house, but with no one there, had gone next door and knocked on Cecil's door. Together, they pieced together the puzzle and then drove over in the Frog Prince to find David at the hospital. Nice car, by the way, Paul chided his father. But what about the rescue, David wanted to know. How had they found him? Cecil smiled. It's that goddamn car of yours, he said. Everyone knew it was yours. So someone spotted the car on the highway, David said. Some doctor from Millstream, Cecil said. She called it in. I suppose seeing the minister's car parked by the bush, parked by that bush anyways, in the middle of the night, it didn't look natural. Who, David wanted to know. What doctor? Cecil shook his head. He didn't know. Incredible, David thought to himself. Well, anyway, I found it. Found what? Cecil asked him. The blowhole, David exclaimed. I found the blowhole. I was standing in it. That's where I fell. Cecil looked puzzled. You were standing in the blowhole? He raised his hand to his head and gave it a good scratch. You were standing in the blowhole, he said again. He shook his head. I don't think so. Sure, David said, and he explained in detail how he had turned right at the fork, found his way through the deer run, come out onto the beach, and then made his way out along the headland to the south. He described the surge channel with its high walls, the rock pile plugging it halfway along, and the fallen boulder wedged between the walls farther up. Slowly, a wide, toothless grin spread across Cecil's face. Well, I never, he said, and he started to laugh. Laughing, he started to cough, so that he was laughing and sputtering at the same time. David motioned with his head for Paul to go over to him. You okay, Cecil? Paul asked him. Tears were streaming down Cecil's face as he laughed and laughed. Oh, that's a good one, he said finally, as he began to breathe again. That's a good one, all right. David and Paul were looking at him. What? David asked him, annoyed. Cecil fixed David with a stare across the room, a glint in his eye. You wasn't in no goddamned blowhole, he said. That thing's no more than about three or four feet across, no more than a crack, for God's sake. You still never found it. And again, he roared and sputtered with laughter. David's face fell as Cecil's words sank in. He hadn't found the blowhole? He'd almost lost his life to that thing, and it wasn't the blowhole? Well, God damn it, David said. God damn it. And he pounded the bed with his fist. He looked up at Paul and across at Cecil. Well, God damn it anyway, he said again, until he too succumbed to the awful absurdity of it and began to laugh, a high hysterical laugh, until he had to clutch at his chest to contain the pain of it. 
The next day, David sat on his hospital bed, fully clothed, waiting for Paul to pick him up and take him back to the rectory. The phone rang on the bedside table. He had received several calls and visits from parishioners, including Mimi, who had brought him a houseplant. But he was reluctant now to answer the phone. The truth was, he was ready to go. He was looking forward, not back, and he did not want to prolong his goodbyes. He picked up the handset. Hello, he said. Hello, David. David smiled with recognition. Bev, he said. It's so good to hear your voice. How are you, she asked. We've been worried sick since Paul called. He said you almost died. I guess so, David said. But I'm here now. He didn't want to talk about it. He just wanted to connect with her across the great distance that had been separating them. My legs mangled, and my chest hurts every time I breathe, but other than that, I'm okay. Really, he said. How are you? It sounded like she was not ready to have the tables turned so quickly. Me? she asked. Okay, I guess. We're looking forward to having you home. Catherine is preparing some nice surprises for you, so... David could not suppress the wide smile spreading across his face. It was just so good to be talking with her again. What was different now, he wondered. David, she was saying. Yes. When you come home, there are some things we will need to talk about. I know, he said. Well, I'm not sure you do, she cautioned. That's okay, he said. The main thing is that, Bev, I love you. We can work it out. She was quiet for a moment on the other end of the line. A lot's happened, she said, hasn't it? Yep, he said. But mostly, I've been acting like an idiot. I know that. I don't know how much damage I've done. Maybe some of it was necessary, but I just know I want to come home and be a family again. It could be a new beginning. But then a sudden shadow fell across his thoughts. Or, he said, or am I missing something? Well, she said. She was hedging. David's heart began pounding in his chest. He closed his eyes. Maybe she didn't want a new beginning. Maybe the damage he'd done was irreparable. Maybe she only wanted a dignified ending. He waited. Tears were forming at the backs of his eyes. If you want to talk about new beginnings, she said slowly, her voice sounding almost coy, then I want you to be thinking about... Two words. All right, he said, sitting up. He sniffed and steadied his chin, bracing himself, wondering if divorce had a two-word synonym. Foster care, she said. For a moment, his mind went blank. The words were so far from anything he might have imagined her saying that they had no meaning at all. He repeated them to himself and then aloud to her. Foster care. That's right, she said. You could just do a little thinking about those words. Slowly an image began emerging on the photographic paper of David's brain. He saw a house filled with children, children who were not his own, little girls in smocks standing by the stove, little boys with gap-toothed grins running up the stairs, listless teenagers with bad skin lounging in doorways, tossing their hair out of their eyes. Foster care, he said again. Hmm, what a concept. David, she scolded him, now don't you dismiss this. I've been giving it a lot of thought. It's important that we simply think about it. I'm not dismissing it, he said. I think it sounds, well, it sounds... 
He wasn't sure how it sounded, whether it was a good or a bad thing. But there was one thing he now knew beyond a doubt. He loved his wife, and she was giving him a second chance. If she wanted foster children, well, why the hell not? Wonderful, he said at last. It sounds wonderful. And he smiled, feeling a little giddy. Think about it, David, she said, unconvinced. I love you, he said. Did you hit yourself on the head when you fell, she asked. If I did, I'm sure I needed it, he answered. I'll see you soon. It took a couple of days for David and Paul to pack things up for their journey home, David hobbling around the rectory on crutches. They were in no hurry, though. The open road was patient and waiting. Paul would be missing a few days of school now, but it was not an issue for either of them. They would get there when they got there. When the car was packed, they closed the front door to the rectory, leaving the keys on the kitchen counter, and drove down to the government docks. Sitting on a park bench, they watched the boats come and go, more tour operators and sport fishermen than commercial vessels. Squawking gulls rose and fell, quarreling among themselves. Sea lions rolled about beneath the dock, keeping one glistening eye on the hulls of the boats that were tied up above them. Bald eagles circled high overhead. A gentle breeze wafted up the harbor from the wide ocean beyond. "'You know, Dad,' Paul said, "'things aren't going to be the same when we get back.' David, his arm draped behind the back of the bench, looked at his son. "'So I gather.' "'Yeah,' Paul went on. "'Mom, she said that when you got back, it would be her turn.' David nodded. "'But that was before you got all banged up,' Paul added." So this might change things. He gazed down at his father's swollen leg, wrapped in ten pounds of plaster, the stubby shapes of his toes peeking out the end of a thick woolen sock. This might help, Paul said approvingly. This definitely might help. Knowing your mother, David replied, I don't think this will change a thing. The two nodded, chuckling together. Let's go, David said finally, gripping his son's shoulder. Paul helped his dad into the passenger seat of the Frog Prince, wedging the cast diagonally through the door. And then he climbed in himself behind the wheel, a lanky teenager, all arms and legs, folded up into a spray-painted lime-green compact. As they drove up the main street and out onto the highway, David hummed to himself an old familiar hymn, singing the words inwardly to himself. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. Thank you so much for joining me for this wild ride. Perhaps the story of Father David will have awakened something of your own story. If so, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a post in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this story, You might want to revisit the episodes of last summer to hear the short stories from my collection, How the Light Gets In. That's where the young Father David made his debut in print. 
Moreover, next summer, I'll be reading from my newest novel, Way, where Father David makes a guest appearance, older now, and even, dare we believe, wiser. With the next episode, we begin the third season of The Mystic Cave, as we continue to explore the spiritual terrain on the other side of Churchland. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on new episodes of The Mystic Cave, be sure to sign up on my website to receive my blog, which offers a more fulsome backgrounder and also includes a direct link to each new episode. My website is www.brianepearson.ca. Thanks again for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Mystic Cave.